0: Let's pray. Dear God, thank you that you have gathered us here together again. Thank you that it is Palm Sunday. And thank you that although, no, although it is not technically Yom Kippur today, thank you that we get to remember what that special day is all about as well. We thank you that despite the fact that this world is both broken and beautiful, we thank you that you are always with us on the mountains and in the valleys. And we thank you for the promise that we have that it ends well, and we thank you for the surety of that promise because of the one who has made a way for us to be reconciled to you, the one who has come to put things right. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, it's a day for us to lift our voices and to shout along with the crowds that were shouting back in the day of Jesus, to shout Hosanna, which I expect you know means save us, right? It's a cry for help. That means Palm Sunday is a day to recognize that we needed saving, right? Nobody cries out, save us, save me, if they're doing just fine, right? Calling out save me means I I'm in a really dire and horrible predicament, and I cannot save myself or I would, and therefore I need help. Save me. And that described each and every one of us. Palm Sunday is a day to remember that we needed saving, but it's also a day to rejoice and recognize that God has answered our cry for help and has, in fact, sent his son to save us. And here's the irony of the story that I've already alluded to. In order for him to save us, he's going to have to die for us. So even though it's Palm Sunday today, Good Friday is just around the corner. It is a commonplace observation for pastors to make. I'm sure that I have made the observation from this pulpit that the same voices that cried, save us, On Palm Sunday were the same voices that cried, crucify him on Good Friday. That's true enough, but the plot twist actually runs a little deeper than that. Because the shout of save us is, in fact, a shout of crucify him at one and the same time. Because without his crucifixion, there is no salvation. So when we shout save us, we are shouting crucify him. And that does bring us to this sixth feast in our study of the Feast of Israel, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This is the big one. This is the greatest of the high holy days that Israel celebrated. This is referred to, was, and continues to be referred to by many Jews as simply the day. The day is Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. This is the day, the one day that brought Israel into the most holy place, into the presence of God. This is actually one of the feasts that most Christians know about because it so explicitly points forward to the ministry of Jesus because the New Testament authors repeatedly make the connection between the Day of Atonement and Christ's substitutionary atonement on our behalf. Yom Kippur is technically considered one of the feasts of Israel, but it is not a day of feasting. It is a day of fasting. You're not supposed to eat on this day. You're supposed to fast. It is a day for mourning. It is a day for lamenting. It is a day for crying out to God for mercy. It is a day for calling out, Hosanna, save us. It is a day to recognize in the most graphic way possible that sin is, Kills. It is a day also set aside for cleansing, cleansing the defiled, all of which makes it a very heavy day. But it is also a day to celebrate, to celebrate that God has heard our cries of hosanna, our cries for mercy, and that God has definitively cleansed us from our sin. It's a bittersweet day, a day when we remember that God heard our cries of Hosanna, a day to rejoice, but also a day to recognize that our salvation entailed the death of another. That's a weighty and painful thing to think about. I'll begin like I have been during this whole series by reading from Leviticus 23. That's the chapter in the Old Testament that runs down the protocol for all of the feasts that ancient Israel celebrated. We get get, uh, some verses about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 23 and starting in verse 26. So I'll read those for us. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Now on the tenth day of this seventh month is the Day of Atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. And you shall not do any work on that very day, for it is a day of atonement, to make atonement for you before the Lord your God. For whoever is not afflicted on that very day shall be cut off from his people. And whoever does any work on that very day, that person I will destroy from among his people. You shall not do any work. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places. It shall be to you a Sabbath of solemn rest, and you shall afflict yourselves. On the ninth day of the month, beginning at evening, from evening to evening, shall you keep your Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Before I go on to describe the details of how Yom Kippur was celebrated in ancient Israel, like I've been doing every week, I just want to tell a story. This is a story that I told here exactly five years ago at the Good Friday service of 2017. I plan that service with my father-in-law, Dick, and that just seems like a lifetime ago. But this is the story that I told. Uh, It it is written not by me. This is a story written by a German pastor named Gunther Rutenborn. Uh, It's a play that he wrote. The play is called The Sign of Jonah. The play was written right after World War II. It was written by a German in Germany. It was written at a time when Germany was kind of just catching its breath, looking around, feeling very guilty saying, what in the world just happened? And how in the world did it ever come to this? How did we let this happen in our country? And so the play is a courtroom drama written by this pastor, and the play, it's a trial, and and the trial is to try to figure out who is guilty of the Holocaust, who is to blame for what just happened in our country. And so Uh, there's a judge in the play, he's kind of the main character uh, in the play, and then different people are brought before the judge. And so the first person brought before the judge is, is, quote, an average woman, just a regular average German woman, and she is accused before the judge of caring more about the well-being of her children than the morality of the nation. And so she comes before the judge with that accusation, and she says, well, it's not my fault. I'm a parent. My devotion to my kids did not cause the Holocaust. And so next they bring a merchant up there, and they accuse him of being more concerned about making money than justice. And he says, hey, it's not my fault. I have to make money. I'm a merchant. That's what I do. And selling my goods did not cause the Holocaust. So then they bring up a soldier, kind of a low-level, common foot soldier. And he basically says, hey, it's not my fault. I, I, I just do what I'm told to do. That's what soldiers do. That's what I'm supposed to do. You can't blame me for following orders. You certainly can't blame me for the Holocaust. And so they keep going up the ladder, and the blame just keeps getting shifted higher and higher okay well if, if not you then who who are you accountable to uh, bring that person in and so the the uh the, the lower ranking soldier after him comes in a higher ranking officer who's more responsible for decision making and he of course blames the politician And so the lower-ranking politician comes in, and he, of course, blames the higher-ranking politician. And so the higher-ranking politician comes in, and he, of course, blames the other world leaders. It's their fault they started it. And finally, there's no more levels up to go anymore. And so somebody comes in and blames God. And then all of these different characters that have been accused and who are feeling very uncomfortable about their role and having perpetuated the Holocaust and having not done anything to stop the Holocaust, all these characters that we've seen along the way, they begin chanting. Do you know what they start chanting? God is guilty. God is guilty. God is guilty. And so finally the judge, who represents God in the play, convicts God of being guilty of the Holocaust. Not because he really is guilty. Of course he isn't. He's the only one in the room who isn't guilty. But he convicts himself of it anyways because someone has to bear the cost, and it is just too crushing for any of the humans to bear it. And the penalty for the conviction is this. I'm quoting directly now. The judge says this. God shall become a human being. God shall become a wanderer on the earth. And God shall be deprived of his rights and homeless and hungry and thirsty. And he shall be born of a woman somewhere along a country road. And he shall be surrounded during his life by the feeble, by the sick, by the filthy, and by people bearing the marks of leprosy. And he shall then know what it means to die. God himself shall die. The judge reads out that verdict, and then he says to all the people in the courtroom, does anyone here object to this verdict? And Jonah, who is the spokesman for the people, he says, of course not. No one here objects to that. And so the judge then says to the messenger, go and tell God the verdict that has been rendered to him by humanity. All right, that's the play. The amazing thing about that story, I find, is not that humanity has the audacity to blame God God for the mess that they themselves created. That happens all the time. The amazing thing about this story is that God, though he is not guilty, accepts the verdict and bears the punishment that humans rightly deserved. That is what happened on Good Friday. Jesus looked at our rebellion, at our sin, at our guilt, and he said, though they are the guilty ones, I will stand accused and I will bear the guilt. Now I want you to imagine that, just for a moment, imagine that you're hearing the story of Christ's crucifixion for the very first time. Right? Imagine the moral outrage that you would feel hearing that story for the first time. What? God created people in His image so that He could bless them, so that He could pour out His love and goodness on them, so that He could be in a loving relationship with them, and in response to that, they break all the rules and they rebel against Him? And in response to their rebellion, he takes on flesh and comes down and dwells among them in order to bring healing and peace to earth. And in response to that, they put him on trial and they condemn him to death and they torture him and they crucify him and they stick him in a grave. And he lets all of that happen so that he can pay the debt that they owe for their sins. That's outrageous. Well, welcome to the day of atonement. The day of atonement is the day when God's outrageous mercy and love find a way against all odds to forgive the guilty and to cleanse the defiled and to bring his rebellious children back home. I read the instructions a minute ago about the the Day of Atonement from Leviticus 23, uh, but the details about the Day of Atonement are given in Leviticus 16. A whole chapter devoted to how this day is supposed to go. Unlike the Feast of Trumpets last week when we got like three verses, this gets a whole chapter about how this day is supposed to go. So let's think about the Day of Atonement. Imagine that it is Yom Kippur and that we are among the people of Israel. Let's meet again at the Tabernacle Complex. We've been doing that every week now. For This is our sixth week in a row. Today is the day, today is the one day that the high priest is going to go into the Holy of Holies. Okay, so when you come to the temple complex, uh, it's surrounded by a fence made of cloth all around in the shape of a rectangle. And if you want to picture how big the, the, the area is, I don't know if, if, if you can picture an American football field, but a, an American football field, the, the, the tabernacle complex was one quarter that size. One quarter of a football field was fenced off with a cloth fence, and that was the tabernacle complex. And so it's fenced all around. You have to enter uh, through the front. Well, imagine it's over there. It's, there's a curtain, an opening in the curtain, and you would come in through there, and as you come in through that curtain, uh, you, you, are, you are looking directly at this thing. This is the bronze altar, which I've said repeatedly it was exactly this size. That's why we did this, so we could get some perspective. So you walk in through the curtain, and you're looking at that. Now, as you're standing there, and you're looking at this, if you look to your left, or if you look to your right, you're going to see four slaughter tables. Four slaughter tables on each side, along the inside of that fence. That is where the killing is done. If you look forward f- over, over me, over the bronze altar, uh, you're going to see the tabernacle itself. It's a tent. If you go into that tent, you wouldn't. <laughs> but if you go into that tent, then in the back third of that tent that area is sectioned off. And in through that, that's the Holy of Holies. And no one ever goes in there except once the high priest, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, goes in the Holy of Holies. So here's what happens on that day. First of all, the priest needs to prepare himself to go in there, and he does so by offering sacrifice for himself and for his family. So what he does before offering those sacrifices is he takes off his ornate priestly garments and he puts on just simple linen garments. This isn't a, this isn't a day of opulence. This is a day of simplicity. And the priest has brought with him a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for what they would call a whole burnt offering. And the high priest will sacrifice that young bull that he brought on one of those slaughter tables, and he'll capture the blood dripping from that bull so that he can bring it with himself when he goes into the tabernacle. Now the ram gets slaughtered, and the ram then gets put on the altar. He doesn't bring the blood of the ram in with him, He puts the ram on the altar. That ram is going to be consumed and burned uh, as a whole burnt offering on the altar. Now the people of Israel have also brought with them collectively two animals. Two goats. Just two goats for all of us. That covers it. We just need to collectively bring two goats. We don't have a big long list of animals for this day. Just two. Two goats. Both of those goats are going to die today but they're going to die in different ways. One is going to be slaughtered right here on a slaughter table, and the other is going to be driven into the wilderness and ultimately driven off a cliff. So the high priest casts lots to see which is which. Which is the goat that's going to get slaughtered on the slaughter table, and which is the goat that's going to get driven off into the wilderness. And the lots end up labeling the goats. So the one lot goes to the goat that's going to be slaughtered, and that one is called for the Lord, for Yahweh. And the other goat that's going to be driven out into the wilderness, the lot that's cast to him, he gets labeled for the devil. Having made preparations and gathered the animals, having slaughtered the ram and put it on the altar, having slaughtered the bull and captured the blood, the high priest then goes into the tabernacle. He has, you probably know because I've said it before, he has bells on the fringes of his robe and he has a rope tied around his waist. As he moves around in there, we're going to be listening for those bells. They're going to be ringing because he's going to be moving around and his robe is going to be swinging. If ever those bells stop ringing, then we are going to assume that he has dropped dead in there. And rather than go in and get him and drop dead ourselves, we're going to pull him out by the rope. I was curious this week, as as I thought about that, how often are these guys dropping dead in there and having to be yanked out by a rope? Uh, It turns out there's no recorded incident of that ever happening. Uh, But but the fact that they they, um, made precautions just in case that happened tells you how seriously they took the prohibition, that nobody goes in there. Even if he drops dead, you don't go in there and get him. You pull him out by a rope. So the priest's journey into the tabernacle begins uh, in the most holy spot. He goes right into the Holy of Holies first thing. Once he's in there, he takes incense that he's brought with him. He burns it on coals. He creates just a large cloud of fragrant smoke, fills the tent. And then he takes that bull's blood that he's brought in with him, and he sprinkles it on the atonement cover, which is on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And then... He takes his finger and he dips it into the bull's blood and he sprinkles it onto the ark seven times. Dips it onto the ark seven times in the darkness with the smoke of the incense filling the tent and the holiness of the presence of God filling the room. He sprinkles the blood of the bull under the Ark of the Covenant. He then exits the most holy place and he enters the room just outside. He performs the exact same ritual again, sprinkling blood this time on the incense altar. He then comes all the way out of the tabernacle. We can see him again. And he goes and he slaughters the goat. He slaughters the goat, the one that was labeled for the Lord, for Yahweh. And then he takes the blood from that goat and he goes back in to the tabernacle. He goes back into the Holy of Holies and he does the exact same thing, sprinkling the blood from that goat for the people of Israel onto the Ark of the Covenant. And then the priest exits the tabernacle and he comes to this, the bronze altar. And he does the blood sprinkling again First with the bull, and then with the goat. He goes to each of the four horns of the altar. That's what those are called, the horns of the altar. And he sprinkles the blood of the bull on each of the four horns to recognize his own sinfulness. And then he sprinkles the blood of the goat on each of the four horns of the altar to recognize the sinfulness of the people of God. And now, after having done that, the priest puts down the receptacles of blood. They've been emptied onto the altar. They're empty now, and he sets them down, and he goes to the live goat, the one that's been labeled for the devil. He lays both of his hands onto that living goat, and in a loud voice, he confesses over that goat all of the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their accumulated sins for the past year. Symbolically, as he speaks those words onto this goat, transferring the sins of the people onto this animal. And then another man, a different man, not the high priest, leads the goat off into the wilderness. Now that goat represents the removal of the sins of Israel from the people of Israel, and the last thing that they wanted was for that goat to wander back into camp. (laughs) You didn't want to see that goat again. And so even though the the verse in Leviticus that tells him what to do says the goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. That's what it says. But it became the practice of the man who took the goat into the wilderness to let it go free right off the edge of a cliff. Just to make sure that that goat was never seen or heard from again. After all of that, there were some closing ceremonies, some ritual washings. The bodies of the bull and the goat that had given their lives, had given their blood for the sin offerings, were not then burnt on the bronze altar. And they were not eaten by the priests, but they were taken outside of the camp, and they were burned entirely. And the summary of the whole point of that day is given in one verse, Leviticus 16 and verse 30. It says this For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you, and you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. That was Yom Kippur. That was how it was practiced during the Old Covenant. Now the point that we've made repeatedly throughout this series is that all of the feasts of the Old Testament in one way or another, all of them were pointing forward to the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. For this one, I think you'll agree with me, it is obvious and easy to connect those dots. Yeah? I want you to think with me just for a few minutes about The brutal day when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, our Savior, was crucified. Okay? Do you remember the scene? He's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's Thursday night. He's just celebrated the Passover with his disciples. He's put on trial before the Jewish council Thursday night, late Thursday night, maybe early Friday morning. They convict him of blasphemy. Then first thing, sun up, Friday morning, they bring him... Uh, to Pilate, put him on trial before the Roman government. He's tried and convicted and he's sentenced to be crucified. He's mocked, he's beaten, he's scourged. And by 9 a.m. Friday morning, I mean, the efficiency of the operation is staggering. By 9 a.m. Friday morning, he's hanging on a cross. For three hours, he suffers on the cross as he dies. For three hours, people walk past. People from every walk of life walk past and mock him While he's up there, hey, miracle worker, saves other people, you're not doing so well with yourself, why don't you come down? Mocked him as he hung up there and died. And then at noon, something happens. Darkness spreads over the whole land for three hours. And then at roughly 3 p.m., Jesus dies. Now, what's the deal with that three-hour stretch where there's darkness from noon to three? What is that about? Well, darkness throughout the Bible signifies the judgment of God. Right? In Deuteronomy 28, Moses is warning the Israelites. He just has given them a boatload of laws. And then he warns them. He says, listen, if you don't obey God, if you rebel against these laws, there's going to be curses that come upon you. And one of the curses is this, he says, you will grope at noonday as the blind people grope in the darkness. That's back in Deuteronomy 28, Moses says that. That's what will happen. Amos chapter 8 and verse 9, God says to the people of Israel, on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. That's Amos chapter 8. Darkness is a sign of God's judgment. We all remember the ninth plague, right? That the Lord sends on Egypt. Darkness over the whole land. Why? It's a sign of his curse. Darkness during the middle of the day is a biblical sign of God's judgment and God's curse. So what is being judged here and what is being cursed? The sins of the whole world are being judged. But only one person is being cursed. The wrath of God is being poured out directly on the head of one person during those three hours of darkness. Here's what I picture. Here's what I want you to picture. It's just an image, but it's a biblical image. During those three hours of darkness from noon until three, I picture the hands of God the Father resting on the head of God the Son. Do you remember that description in Leviticus? The priest lays both hands on the head of the goat, and in a loud voice, he confesses over the goat all the iniquities of the people of Israel, all their transgressions, all their accumulated sins, symbolically, in that moment, transferring the sins of the people to the head of the animal. This time, on this day, it's not a symbol, it's happening. The sins of the people of God are being transferred onto the head of the Son of God. That's exactly what it says happened. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that. It says, God made him who knew no sin. That's Jesus. God made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He made him to be sin. He put the sins of the people onto the head of the Son, just like they did On the day of atonement. But then it was symbolic. And on this day, it really happened. Isaiah 53 says the same thing. Words we all know. Surely he has borne our griefs. And he has carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. After those three hours of darkness, we're told that Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Do you know that's the only time in all the Gospels that Jesus prays to God and does not address God as Father? That's the only time. The Son has been forsaken by the Father. And all the righteous wrath that the Holy Father has towards sin is channeled down upon the head of His Son. And after that cry of dereliction, the Savior says one more thing before He dies. One more word in the Greek. One word he says, remember it? To it, teslatize what he said. It's over, it's done, it's accomplished. This is why I came and I have done it. It is finished. And at that moment, something of eternal significance happens, something that directly ties The substitutionary atonement of Jesus with the day of atonement. At that moment, do you remember what happened? At that very moment, the curtain that blocked the way to the Holy of Holies, that curtain that prevented anyone from going in there ever except the high priest once a year on the holiest day of the year, that curtain, the moment that Christ died, that curtain that separated God's people from God's presence was torn in two from top to bottom. So now everyone who has repented of their sins and has faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ can come into the presence of God and not die, but live Forever. That is why this altar, awesome as it is, is just a prop. That's why the blood on the horns is fake. That's why this whole thing is going to be gone next week when we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We don't need it. We don't need this altar. Because Christ Jesus has made the one sacrifice to atone for our sins. And that is sufficient. And it is finished, and we can all now enter into the Holy of Holies and the presence of God, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is what the Day of Atonement is all about. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, it's an incredible story. I, I am in awe of it every time I think about it or tell it. The audacity of the guilty judging the perfect creator, sentencing him to death and executing him. The audacity of that story. And yet the humility and the mercy of you being willing to enter into that story and to play that role, not only of perfect and just and glorious creator, but to play the role of the perfect and spotless lamb, to play the role of the goat, the scapegoat, upon whose head the sins of the people are placed and then driven off into the wilderness. It's not fair, it's definitely not fair, but it's mercy and it's grace and it's love and it's compassion and it's beautiful And it's painful. Lord, once again, we have the opportunity to reflect on that story. And to thank you for your substitutionary atonement. That you have died in our place and it is finished and the curtain is torn. And that we can be with you forever. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.